Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 9.38 Central Daylight Time. It is the 19th of March, 2020. This is episode 218 of Bitcoin and... Yeah, sequestration kind of blows, man. Uh, The kids are going to be apparently around for two weeks. Uh, We got a notification from the school that uh, after this spring break is over that we're in for another week of spring break because everybody's losing their freaking mind. So it's no wonder that our school system is losing their freaking minds too. But, you know, what are you going to do is probably... It's probably for the best. I, I don't like it, but, you know, it's it's probably for the best. Uh, meanwhile, during all this impending doom saga that we're experiencing, I got a news out of Jack Dorsey's Square. It appears that Jack Dorsey's Square Bank will open in 2021. This is Christina Combin writing sometime today for Bitcoinist.com. Bitcoin advocate and Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey just had his application to launch Square Financial Services approved by the FDIC. This means that the United States Financial Services and Mobile Payment Company, whose cash app allows for payments in Bitcoin, will soon be able to issue loans to commercial merchants. (laughs) A federal deposit insurance corporation's approval of Dorsey's de novo industrial bank is a significant move. In fact, no such application has been approved for more than 10 years. According to a statement by FDIC chairman Jelena McWilliams, quote, the FDIC evaluates all applications for deposit insurance, including those for industrial banks, based on the same statutory factors as or in the Federal Deposit Insurance Act. It has been more than a decade since the FDIC has approved deposit insurance for an industrial bank or industrial loan company, end quote. According to the release, Dorsey's Bank will provide commercial loans to merchants using Square's existing payments system. It will be headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, where it is still awaiting approval from the Utah Department of Financial Institutions. Once this is received, it will mean the bank should open open its doors for its first commercial customers in 2021. Acquiring FDIC approval was no easy feat. In fact, applications for deposit insurance are heavily scrutinized. They must meet criteria based on no less than seven different factors. These include the general character and fitness of the management of the institution, the institution's capital structure, and its futures earnings prospects. It's also not cheap to launch a venture. According to the official approval order, Dorsey must stump up to a minimum of $56 million in initial paid-in capital funds. Dorsey infamously predicted that BTC would become the global currency taking over the dollar within the next decade. With such a powerful Bitcoin visionary at its helm, uh, Square's foray into industrial banking could be very bullish for the space indeed. Uh, We'll have to see. I mean, this is industrial stuff, so 
it's not like he's funding, you know, mom and pops, you know, home loans or anything like that. Although I, I suppose that would be next, but from what I've read in other places, this has, this is very much, uh, part of Square's <coughs> small business thrust. Um, they, it, I don't know if you, if, if you follow Square's Twitter feed, but generally speaking at any given time, you'll see like a four or five tweet, uh, tweet thread that will showcase like a small, like a bakery or a, you know, somebody like a restaurant or, you know, somebody selling, I don't know, like shoe inserts or some shit like that, uh, which is good. I mean, I like small business. I, I think we should have more of them. And I think is, uh, I think as some of these larger companies start melting down permanently, one, one can hope because they've just become, they've become mummies, you know, <laughs> or zombies or whatever. Um, and I really do believe that you get to businesses get to a point where they're just too big. I, I know that's not popular in, in today's, you know, business speak, but I, I do, I think there's, you know, like here, here's the example in books. When you were a kid reading about, you know, dinosaurs or you know, any kind of fiction, right. About dinosaurs or ain't, you know, way ancient times there's inevitably you're going to run across the giant insect, right? Like a dragonfly that's a hundred feet long. Yeah. Uh-huh. That never happens. There's a reason that, that insects are never giant. They, they play by, they, they don't have a respiratory system, right? They don't have lungs and a diaphragm to pump air in and out of, of that air, you know, that, that gas exchange uh, chamber with a vascularized tissue set that allows that gas exchange to actually occur. Okay. They, uh, they depend like insects in general depend on diffusion and they, they need oxygen like everything else that lives, but they don't get oxygen the way that, you know, generally speaking mammals do. Okay. They're like, I don't know, more like plants insofar as they, they depend on diffusion maybe some active transport, but generally speaking is diffusion. And if you are depending on diffusion, there's only so far in given your surface area that oxygen will flow in a diffuse matter in a, in a diffuse manner. I believe that companies have no lungs. I think that they're more like insects than we think and that they depend on diffusion. And when they get too big, they start suffocating from the inside out. I just, you know, <laughs> just saying. So as these companies, you know, many of them will probably die during this entire thing. And I don't, while I don't like people being laid off, <clears throat> hopefully they will go to work at some of these smaller businesses that start popping up. Uh, and it seems that Jack Dorsey is going to start making that a little bit easier for people. I just, the last thing that I'll say about that is Utah. I mean, what's going on in Utah? I kind of, it would have been interesting to see that this, you know, happened in Wyoming with all the stuff going on out there. But it's probably better that yet another state starts uh, getting their shit together because this whole thing is burning like a house of cards soaked in diesel. Okay, this this next one is going to be the last one for the morning roundup one. And it's not because I'm going to be trying to keep this short today. I am, but this is a long read. All right. 
This is from Decrypt.co. This is written by Andrew Hayward. How Althea is using crypto to bring internet to rural communities. Now, this was written back on March the 15th. And I was going to read it, but uh, the show ended up going really long. And this is this is a long, one of the longer articles that I've seen out of Decrypt. So strap in. Decentralized internet services use wireless antennas and routers that pay each other crypto for bandwidth. And it's already running in America and Africa. Internet access is one of the most important tools of the modern era, yet getting a quality connection, let alone an affordable one, is still a challenge for many people. Rural areas often suffer from poor speeds and limited options, while the rising cost of broadband providers and contracts prevent some from having solid, steady internet access. Is decentralization the answer? That's what Althea believes. Rather than have a large-scale internet service provider that delivers internet to most of the homes and businesses in an area, Althea is a community-driven wireless mesh internet. Neighbors provide service to each other, and crypto-fueled routers automatically pay each other for broadband usage. It's not just a concept. Althea's network uh, is already up and running. <coughs> Quote, imagine a world where your Althea router in your home automatically selects your upstream provider on a second-by-second basis based on your choice of cost and quality where neighbors can pay neighbors for bandwidth and your existing ISP can add capacity in a seamless fashion to this network, co-founder and CEO Deborah Simpier explains to Decrypt. That's the kind of world we're hoping to create with Althea. Simpier herself runs Althea's first community network in Klansky, Oregon, about an hour outside of Portland. The Klansky Co-op Network, as it's called, begins with a commercial fiber internet subscription to her computer repair shop, and the service then broadcasts out from there using 2.4 gigahertz and 5 gigahertz antennas. Relay nodes pick up the signal and then rebroadcast it out to other homes in the area, and the chain continues. Along the way, each router, typically consumer routers from Linksys or other brands flashed with Althea firmware, automatically sends cryptocurrency back and forth based on bandwidth usage. Althea's website describes the wide variety of community members involved in the network. Quote, Yvonne owns the local fruit stand and is a bus driver. Dante is a young game developer. Sean is a programmer and tinker who designed the telescoping tower that Klansky, is it Klatz, Klatzcanny, Klatzcanny Co-op. That's just a weird name. Klatzcanny Co-op is currently using. Clark is a retired Intel project manager. Matt is a tugboat captain and has experience with his company's union in, quote, Althea's network connects these seemingly disparate members of society as a community while also providing them shared access to a network. It's not only cheaper than any dedicated ISP contract would be in the area, but the wireless decentralized approach also helps helps Althea users overcome the geographical challenges present in the region. Quote, it allows us to give really high-speed signal to neighbors in a really flexible and natural way to use these relays, says Asimpier. According to Simpier, a lot of the issues with large-scale ISP infrastructure reaching these users have to do with property rights conflicts and coordination between agencies, dodging that entirely by supporting smaller-scale, decentralized community networks allows not only more flexibility for overcoming physical barriers, but also uh, furthers user choice. 
And she's seen the local organizers feel a sense of ownership and camaraderie as a result, while adding users only helps expand and reinforce the network. What quote, what started to happen is as people got the internet and realized they could resell the internet and that they had a choice of who their provider was, they started to take ownership of it, she recalls. They chose to promote and grow it and feel that sense of ownership that we talk about with decentralized systems. To see that happen in my community was really quite amazing, end quote. Users can choose to pay a little more for faster service or pay a little less for slower access. And if your account runs out of funds, you'll still have access at a free tier with baseline speeds. For people who cannot afford a consistent monthly broadband subscription or have fallen behind on payments to giants such as Comcast and Spectrum, it could be a lifeline to the modern world. Althea's three co-founders, Simpier, CTO Justin Kilpatrick, and former CEO Jahan Trembeck, who departed the role in February, came from various backgrounds and locales, but were all intrigued by the idea of a decentralized internet service in different ways. Quote, in high school, I was running around telling everybody that Bitcoin was going to be the next big thing. Everybody was telling me I was stupid. Kilpatrick recalls of his own pre-college, pre-Althea days. I was really interested in the idea of a per-byte mesh network to buy bandwidth, but I had no idea how to implement it at the time. They began to converge together around 2016-17 to put their various ideas and concepts together as a collective and raised $1.1 million in seed money in 2018. Kilpatrick says that there were several other projects with similar ideas back then, but that Althea is the only multi-hop high-speed mesh network that delivers internet service today, whereas Simpia speaks more from the practical perspective of bringing internet to undeserved users and building community around it. Kilpatrick discusses the ideological implications of Althea. Quote, bytes of data, you're buying them right now, you're using them. You use them every day, but you've never bought a byte of data in your life. What you buy is a contract to maybe purchase a byte of data, kinda, if it's available. That's how your cell phone contract works, and that's how your contract with an ISP works, and that's crazy. Imagine if food was sold like that, end quote. Kilpatrick suggests that many of the startups that were originally looking into the space wanted to make and sell their own branded software hardware, while Althea is keen on reprogramming common consumer routers and IoT devices to work on the network. He calls it an industry blind spot that tech companies aren't considering repurposing hardware. It's just a really dramatically different approach that we're not seeing anybody else consider or even think about, and that's the key to our strategy and approach, he adds. Quote, it's such a fighting environment where everybody is so obsessed with data collection and ad tech that they've forgotten what technology can do, he says of today's tech giants. There's no more exploration of how technology works together to do cool things. It's like, how do we manage to capture all of the user's data? We think that explicitly going forward with a privacy first and uh, open software approach of helping users free their devices will let us do things and provide a user experience which no one else can because they're too obsessed with the advertising possibilities. Right now, Althea has a small footprint of five (coughs) decentralized networks, but larger ambitions ahead. Two of those current networks are recently established in Africa with a network in Abuja, Abuja, offering internet access that is 20 times faster and five times cheaper than legacy mobile-only ISPs, according to a release. Althea currently uses the stable coin. Oh, God, here's the shit coinery part. 
Uh, Althea currently uses the stablecoin XDAI to make payments from router to router based on bandwidth usage and will be shifting to DAI as it builds its own blockchain this year to handle transactions. And I should already be done with this bullshit. This is pissing me off. But there's something here, so let's let's continue. Our blockchain will be built on Cosmos, and there's a bridge called Peggy, which bridges from the DAI and the routers to our Cosmos blockchain cells. I mean, within a paragraph, this entire thing just falls into being very, very simple and very, very cool to very, very complicated and probably doomed to failure because they just don't get it. Jesus Christ, just use, figure out how to involve lightning. It's not all that hard. and. The company opted for a stablecoin to ensure that user account balances aren't fluctuating, something that the average non-crypto enthusiast demands. According to Kilpatrick, the routers can run on Ethereum, and he's worked on gas scaling to make it feasible. For example, a router could pay for every couple of dollars of usage and accumulate further before transacting. However, it's not ideal for Althea's unique needs, and users could potentially circumvent that process and get free bandwidth by pulling the plug on their router. Quote, we would mind using ETH, but because the miners, <clears throat> oh, sorry, only because the miners and the operation and the network in general is not designed for our use case, he explains. If ETH gets taken down by CryptoKitties and has no solid rules for how transactions get into blocks, then we're in a very bad spot because our stuff is production critical. It must remain up. And it's also necessary that transactions occur quickly, about one every 10 cents. That's... Okay, that's not really a, a time, but whatever. In the United States, Althea users buy ETH with a debit card and the money appears on the router. However, what really happens behind the scenes is that the ETH is purchased via a wire plug-in on the router dashboard and then bridged over to XDAI via Uniswap. But that is all abstracted from the users. As far as they're concerned, they type in their card number and the number of dollars and hit go, says Kilpatrick. In developing countries, an XDAI wallet called Effectivo is used via a local merchant, merchant who can send XDAI to the router address. Over the next year, Althea hopes to scale from five networks to 25 and is also working with municipal, public-private partnerships and developing improved network operator tools. Growing a decentralized service like this is likely to happen gradually and virally rather than explosively. But Simpia suggests that it would be difficult to convince current Althea users to switch back to a typical ISP. My rural neighbors are not going to give up their antennas now, she asserts. And that's going to do it for part one of the morning roundup. It's the snooze you can use. Vital statistics. This is from CNBC.com. Uh, markets don't look like they're freaking out right now. Uh, it was pretty ugly on the futures uh, desk, but uh, looks like, I don't know, looks like things have stable. S&P's only down like a third of 1%. NASDAQ is up by one one and a quarter percent. The Dow Jones is only down by two thirds of a percent. FTSE's up by a quarter of a percent, and everything else seems pretty much flat, except the VIX, of course. The VIX is always up. That's your volatility uh, index, and it's up uh, 3.7%. Its last was right around 80. Uh, looks like bonds have all kind of fallen, but only in the tenth of, tenth of a percent range. 
Uh, oh, good God. Uh, oil's up three to 23.35. That's a 14, uh, God, a 14.5% change. Uh, natural gas is up 2.18%. Gold is up 0.176%. <laughs> I am Peter Schiff's pet rock. Its last was 1,480. And I'm, even I'm surprised. Uh, about the fact that gold isn't isn't having a bigger rally than than this. However, this is paper gold. As I was reminded by uh, a guy on Twitter, he's like, "No, dude, you're looking at paper gold. That's not actual gold." And he that that's actually correct. He that person is actually right that this is paper gold and it's not real gold. In fact, I'm seeing lots of uh, screen captures of people trying to buy bullion, whether gold or silver. And it's sold out. Physical gold is sold out. Again, I don't hate gold. I'm just not a big fan of Peter Schiff because he's such a douchebag sometimes. Uh, we've got Bitcoin at a price of 5820 It looks like our high is going to be over at Coinbase Pro at 5860 Our low is going to be out there at HitBTC at 5807 uh, 277,000 transactions remain in the last 24 hours with about 11,500 transactions being made per hour on average. However, 1.23 million BTC have been sent in that last 24 hours with an average being sent per hour of 51,615 BTC and the average transaction value being about four and a half BTC with the median transaction value being 0 0.073 BTC or about 425 bucks. Block time is still high, 12 minutes and 52 seconds. That's one of the highest block times that I've seen in quite a while. 0.62 BTC have been taken in fees on, or is being taken in fees on a per block basis. And good God, 70 and a half BTC have been taken overall in fees in the last 24 hours. We've had a hash rate plunge of 12%. That brings us way sub 100 exahashes to. 87.79 exahashes per second. Again, this is according to BitInfo charts. We'll probably get a different picture from my nodes information. Uh, the last time nobody did dick on Bitcoin was apparently sometime yesterday. Ethereum is at 126, Bcash at 190, Litecoin at 36.36, BSV at 125, Ethereum Classic at $4.78, and Dogecoin to get a little bit of an uptick, 0 0.0017. At 32,000 transactions over the last 24 hours, it beats, it almost beats Ethereum Classic and definitely walks all up and down Litecoin. However, Bcash at 56,000 transactions the last 24 hours looks like it's back to its, uh, its generalized worthlessness. Uh, my node, let's see, my node BTC is refreshing and we are in fact at a hash rate of 94 exahashes per second. Who is to be believed? I'm going with my node. 19.3 uh, uh, megabytes are, uh, of transactions are in the mempool. That is about 15,000 unconfirmed transactions as it stands. Last 10 blocks are full to 99.8% capacity. Clark Moody's dashboard is going to tell us about Lightning. Uh, we have 906 BTC in a Lightning network capacity in total. That represents $5.3 million of liquidity in USD terms. There is 6,561 nodes with 36,052 total channels. Tor capacity is 365 BTC, representing an uptick of 
we've gone to from I think as the when I first started doing Clark Moody's the that percentage of tour capacity in BTC was 40.1 we are now at 40.3% the total number of nodes in tour is 1903 that's gonna do it for vitals Morning Roundup Part 2, coming at you. BitMEX refunding crypto traders affected by a series of coordinated DDoS attacks. This is Daily Hodel staff writing for the Daily Hodel sometime yesterday. BitMEX is refunding users who were affected by the most recent attacks on the platform. (laughs) This is why I don't trade. Uh, one of the reasons. At the peak of market volatility on Friday, BitMEX experienced an operational outage that caused erroneous transactions. In a statement, Arthur Hayes says the downtimes were caused by two distributed denial of service attacks and not by hardware failure, as earlier believed. A DDoS attack involves overwhelming the system with requests to make network resources unavailable and to disrupt the provider's services. Hayes, The BitMEX co-founder says the botnet responsible for the attacks was also behind an unsuccessful attempt to compromise the system last month and waited for the next best opportunity to strike. As Bitcoin dropped below 4,000 on Friday, the botnet attacked and essentially crippled the platform. Hayes says 156 accounts sustained losses as a result of late processing of market orders during the downtime and the crypto trading firm is compensating the affected traders. Oh, nice. Quote, for each stop that triggered erroneously during the, that period, BitMEX calculated the delta to the printed index price and refunded the user. A total of 40.297 XBT was refunded in, quote, Hayes assures users that <laughs> funds are safe. No, sorry, sorry, that their data is secure and there is no threat to their personal information since the cyber attack is aimed at just slowing down the system. He adds that BitMEX is working to enhance the security of the system. And I, you know, I, I don't have any sympathy for traders. I really don't. I'm sorry. If you're, if you're a trader and you get caught in this shit, uh, dude, don't trade. I mean, I don't know what else to tell you, but I don't know. Is it good that Arthur's refunding? Honestly, I don't know. I really don't. I don't know if that's good or bad. I, I could probably go either way, so I'm just going to hang out here in the middle. Huobi and Binance support community-led Steam hard fork. <laughs> Talk about capitulation. Jeez. Uh, this was uh, written by Samuel Haig for Cointelegraph sometime this morning. Major cryptocurrency exchanges Binance and Huobi have announced support for the Steam community's hard fork to create a new Hive network. On March the 18th, Binance Huobi published announcements revealing their support for the Steam hard fork that is scheduled for March the 20th. God, that's tomorrow. The decisions appear to quash allegations from earlier in the month that the exchanges were coordinating with Justin Sun in his apparent attempted takeover of the Steam network. Both exchanges will take snapshots of Steam account balances at 2 p.m. UTC, and both exchanges will suspend Steam deposits and withdrawal. 30 minutes uh, prior to the snapshot, Hive tokens will be distributed through a one-to-one airdrop. However, the roughly 74 million tokens held by Steemit Inc. through a controversial ninja mine will be not be airdropped onto the new chain. That's interesting. Hive announced its plans 
for a hard fork on March the 18th, describing itself as having been created by a large group of Steam community members who have long looked to move towards true decentralization. Yeah, that's okay, whatever. Hive comprises a community-led backlash protesting Tron founder Justin Sun's apparent bid to forcibly take over the Steam network earlier this month. On the 3rd, community members of the blockchain-powered blogging platform Steamit discovered that customer funds held on Huobi and Binance had been mobilized to vote alongside Justin Sun to oust the network's council of nodes in favor of himself. The move came nearly three weeks after Justin Sun purchased Steamit and announced that the platform would be migrating to the Tron network from its native Steam blockchain. <laughs> In response to extreme community backlash, Huobi and Binance quickly withdrew their votes, claiming that they had been informed of upcoming network upgrades and that they did not intend to collude with Sun to execute the network coup. On March the 10th, Binance CEO Shengpeng Zhao published an apology letter to the Steam community. While some analysts speculated that Huobi and Binance may have been quickly attempting to cover their tracks and manage community outrage, the exchange's support for the Hive hard fork appears to validate their purported agnosticism with regard to the governance of both the Steam and Hive blockchains. The announcement of the Hive hard fork saw Steam rally 230% from 12.5 cents to 41.2 cents over seven or uh, uh, good God, 17 hours, despite retracing 25 cents or 25% back to 30.9 cents since posting the local high six hours ago. Steam remains the strongest performing crypto asset of the past 24 hours. Jesus, God, the shit goinery. Cointelegraph contacted Huobi and Binance to request comments regarding their support for Hive. However, did not receive a response as of press time. So it doesn't really matter what I think uh, because I'm not in the heads of either one of the guys from Binance or Huobi. But honestly, I think that they're just going with wherever the wind blows. I, I honestly, I think that for these guys that steam is not important enough for them to give any more of a shit about it than to figure out who's yelling the loudest and then give those people a bottle to suck on while they change their diapers. Because that's, I mean, steam doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. I'm sorry. I, I even have an account on steam. I was all excited about steam like everybody else when, when we didn't realize what shit coinery was really all about. And I haven't even logged into steam in a year, something like that. And even when I did log in, it was just to see if my, my account was still there. I don't care. And I don't think a lot, I mean, I haven't really seen a whole lot out of steam at all. The only thing that I've seen out of steam is this controversy. And honestly, that a blockchain does not make actually, I can I I have never been more wrong. Of course a controversy makes blockchains. That's the only thing that they really have because their token is generally valueless. US wants big tech to use cell phone data to fight coronavirus. Here we go, y'all. <coughs> United States government, <coughs> excuse me, Corona, is trying to avert disaster as it responds to COVID-19, but is leveraging location data warranted. Frank Cardona writing sometime Yesterday for Decrypt.co says the U.S. government is in talks with Facebook, Google, 
and other tech companies to compile location data from individual cell phones to combat the coronavirus, according to a report by the Washington Post. An anonymous source told the Post that government health experts want tech companies to collect anonymous aggregated data. The data could be used to map COVID-19 spread, determine whether Americans are practicing social distancing, predict localized outbreaks, and make decisions about where to allocate resources. Determine whether Americans are practicing social distancing. Just replace uh, Americans and practice social distancing with any country here and any damn thing that we want to figure out if they're doing wrong. Seriously, this is just bad. I mean, I'm not, yeah, this one is bad, but whatever. The talks are reportedly in the early stages and ideas are still being proposed. And though the intention is to collect anonymous data, is this even possible without infringing on the privacy of individuals? Anthony Pompliano, co-founder and partner of Morgan Creek Digital, has concerns. Quote, the privacy of American citizens should be the number one priority for private technology companies and the U.S. government. The COVID-19 issue is real, and we should be addressing it in every possible way, but we must also remember to respect the United States Constitution, along with the rights of our citizens. Uh, end quote. Will Reeves, CEO and co-founder of FoldApp, took it a step further. It is not currently possible to use the data in a strictly anonymous way, he told Decrypt. This is absolutely an invasion of privacy. The question is if that invasion is warranted. It's not a question, and I like Will. I really do, but this one, no, you're wrong. It's not even a question. It is not warranted. It will never be warranted. If you want the protections of privacy that the United States Constitution and other documents may or may not give, then you're going to have to deal with the fallout. It's not, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. If you want your privacy, then you may not know that your neighbor has freaking coronavirus. And you'll have to find that shit out for yourself when you bring them a cake or something. I don't know. But if you want to be completely safe, then you will not be free. It's one or the other. You cannot have both. So the question of whether or not something like this is warranted, in my mind, is not even a question. It's a conjecture for having a discussion over drinks at a bar. Continuing, in light of this report, Reeves thinks this might be a glimpse of a new Patriot Act, referring to legislation passed in response to the September 11th attacks that expanded the government's power to snoop on the private data of citizens. Quote, crises like this always give cover to push through previously untenable policies. It's the public's job to stay vigilant during these times. As we saw with the Patriot Act, it can take a decade to uncover the full implications of these policies, such as warrantless wiretapping, Reeves said, and that's correct. Reeves has a point. Yes, he does. Uh, Last week, it was revealed that at least one senator is toying with a law that could render end-to-end encryption irrelevant by providing law enforcement with a backdoor into individuals' communications. Any legislations or policies pushed forward today could have bigger ramifications down the line. Reeves pointed to how technology has advanced exponentially since the Patriot Act was passed. Ring doorbells originally intended for owner's safety can be directly accessed by authorities. His concern is that ratcheting up the stakes will put the United States and other countries on course to be a full-blown surveillance state. Just look at China. 
quote, the Chinese response to COVID will be lauded and, and, and other countries will move to mirror their capabilities, Reeves said. The issue is that their successful response is partly predicated on having a robust surveillance state. Yeah, and he's right there too. The only thing that Re- uh, Will Reeves is wrong about here is that the, que- the you know, it's the, the whole warranted issue. It's not warranted. Now, coming out of, uh, as I did, out of science education, one of the things about taking data, okay, uh, in a scientific study that you intend in an, as an academic, okay, so you've got, I'm lo- localized about what I'm say, about to say to academia, uh, publications of science, you know, like science papers, like, you know, writing a paper with your colleagues and then submitting it as a peer-reviewed article to like science or nature, you know, a journal, those kinds of things. And having like eight or 10 people completely destroy your ideas and make you cry. And then you have to rewrite it for five. That's the kind of shit that I'm talking about. If you intend to use human data of any way, in any way, shape or form and data of any type, you honestly, if you're going to publish a paper in like a really shitty, but yet peer reviewed academic journal, and all you're doing is uh, asking them questions like a survey, the amount of hoops that you have to jump through to get that study approved before you can even execute it is huge. Okay. So that's where the, that's the world that I come from is that uh, patient and human data is protected in ways that uh, generally speaking, the United States or the, the world's population just doesn't understand the links at which uh, scientists go to to make sure that there is absolutely no way anybody knows that like patient X in this study's real name is, you know, Bill or something like that, or where, especially where they live or how old they are or what their ethnicity is and all kinds of shit, right? <clears throat> it's called D... D and, but it's they anonymize the data in a way that is really you know is very rigorous if that kind of shit were able to be done with 100% certainty that the uh and the anonymization not only is real but that it will hold forever and ever and ever then i really don't have a problem with this kind of shit the problem is you can't guarantee that you just can't. I mean, it's tenuous at best in the academic realms, but it's, I mean, it's, I, I, I definitely do trust the, uh, uh, the way that we anonymize data in science, because once that thing is published, nobody really cares about trying to go and, and peel back all the layers that you did to, to hide the, the, uh, uh, identity of the people that were involved in the study. I don't see that ever coming to this kind of thing. So yeah, no, I mean, at that point, if you're yelling at me saying, well, then we're all going to get sick and die. Yeah, maybe. I mean, is that what you want? Do you want to live in a police state or do you want to die free? I mean, depends on, I guess how you, what you think death really is. I mean, if it's, it's hard to tell somebody else that's not in my mind, that death probably is not what we think it is because it's just crazy. I mean, it's like you, especially if you've lost somebody yourself, 
um, you, you'd be correct to be apt to jump on me and say, that's ridiculous, man, that, you know, it's ridiculous. But my, for me and for mine, I would rather me and mine die as free people than to be looked at like a bug for the rest of our lives. Even if that meant keep, keeping us healthy. I mean, do you want to be a healthy cow for slaughter or do you just want to go away? I mean, it's one of those things, but be that as it may, crypto miners apparently can turn their rigs towards finding a COVID-19 cure. <laughs> this clearly is not going to affect ASICs. So just let's, let's read that. Let's re- read this thing with the whole fact that yeah, ASICs are not going to be involved in this. Open source collaboration and technological innovation are crucial during a global crisis. A potentially impactful collaborative initiative to find potential medical solutions for the COVID-19 pandemic has been launched by, you guessed it, Folding at Home. This was written by Andy Pickering on the 18th of March for BraveNewCoin.com. Open source collaboration and technological innovation are crucial during a global crisis in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. The more resources we can gather to overcome this global threat, the better. An interesting and potentially impactful collaborative initiative to find potential medical solutions for the COVID-19 pandemic has been launched by Folding at Home. On the 15th of March, Folding at Home announced the launch of a new initiative that involves individuals across the globe contributing their computing power to stimulate or simulate the dynamics of COVID-19 proteins in order to find a potential cure and or treatment for the novel coronavirus. Quote, viruses have proteins that they use to suppress our immune systems and reproduce themselves to help tackle the coronavirus. We want to understand how these viral proteins work and how we can design therapeutics to stop them, the project stated in a blog post. To gain a deeper understanding of the coronavirus and to potentially discover therapeutics for COVID-19, Folding at Home is calling on volunteers to contribute their idle computing power to run protein simulations. Since the initiative has previously made successful strides forward in the fight against Ebola, the project may help find valuable therapeutic solutions for COVID-19. Folding at Home is a distributed computing project for simulating protein dynamics, including the process of protein folding and the movements of proteins implicated in a variety of diseases, according to the initiative's website, that is. The idea is that citizen scientists around the world volunteer to run simulations of protein dynamics on their computers in order to help scientists develop therapeutics with the help of volunteers who possess strong graphics cards in their computers. More simulations can be run in a shorter period of time as more computing power is being used to simulate protein dynamics. Cryptocurrency miners who are using rigs full of GPUs to mine digital currency could help to play their part in solving the COVID-19 crisis by directing their computing power towards finding a potential cure instead. How many crypto miners will forego mining revenues to potentially save the lives of thousands, if not millions of people remain to be seen. But what is clear is that mining pools would be the perfect volunteers for the Folding at Home project to contribute your compute power to help find therapeutic solutions for COVID-19. You can download the Folding at Home software here and get started now. And of course, the word here is obviously a link. Now, okay, Folding at Home been around for years. I mean, like over a decade. <clears throat> it's a great program. Uh, it's also, it, it was actually born out of the same idea as SETI at home. 
where uh, compute power was uh, by citizen, quote unquote, citizen scientists was pointed at uh, radio data coming from uh, outer space to see if there was any kind of, you know, patterned signals that would suggest intelligent life. Um, And then Folding at Home came out uh, not long after SETI came out. And I was actually part of both of those projects in in so far that I I did, you know, like uh, point my compute power. And it was great, too, because there was I don't know if they do it. I'm hoping that they still do this, but there's a switch that you can set that it shuts down folding at home or SETI when you're, when the computer or when that software senses that you're doing something else so that it allows you to have all your compute power while you're doing your shit. And then like every, I guess it probably looks every five minutes or so to see if you're down at like where you're not using it. There's no mouse clicks, there's no keyboard strokes, whatnot like that. And then it goes ahead and harvest your, the full compute power of your rig. Now, in this particular case, they're asking probably some of the worst people on the face of the planet, uh, people that mine shit coins with GPUs, to to forego their quote-unquote profits. Personally, I think that they should because as long as shit coins die a horrible and, and spectacular death, I'm happy. And if that death can be hastened by the fact that everybody's scared of COVID-19 to the point that they're irrational that they actually point their GPUs to do this, then so be it, pal. I'm, I'm totally good with that. But again, ASICs don't work here. Now this brings up an entire discussion about Richard Hart Wynn. Right, now one of the reasons he was successful uh, with his last shitcoin was the fact that he prayed or, and had started... He had started preying on people's sensibilities as to surely something else can be done with all this compute power, because especially at the time we were talking about the largest computer on the face of the planet being Bitcoin. Sorry, I really need coffee. I'm trying to get it any way I can. And apparently intravenous injection does not, it will result in immediate death. So I can't do it that way. Um, Richard Hart, before he started Hex, his entire, he got on the scene and he basically said, I love Bitcoin, I love Bitcoin, I love Bitcoin, and here's all the shit that I do, and look at my wealth and riches and whatnot. And he basically duped a whole bunch of people into believing that we had an ally in Richard Hart win, and nothing could have been, could have been further from the truth. Uh, he, after, after he got into the good graces of all the Bitcoiners, he started talking about, is it possible to do something else with all this compute power? Well, yeah, there, there kind of was, except that by the time that he got in on the scene, ASICs were pretty much, you know, 95, 98% of how you uh, were going to mine Bitcoin proper. It doesn't do anything else. So that's when he, he thought it was probably okay to start talking about developing a shitcoin. And it was a fluid dynamics simulation. And I cannot remember the name of the coin offhand. But he was working with a rocket scientist, and he would say that all the time. I got a rocket scientist. Oh, Jesus Christ. However, the idea made a lot of sense, and that's why he used the idea. I don't think he had any, any plans at all to actually give a shit about fluid dynamics. It was just the fact that it was like it was going to play on the sensibilities of people that knew what compute power could actually do. And his coin at the time was going to somehow or another... It's, it's, 
the way that you would mine his coin is by doing these these fluid simulation calculations. So it was like it was almost as if that well actually the way he termed it is that that was the proof of work. It was a POW chain, and but the proof of work was solving these equations. The problem was nobody could figure out how you were actually going to mine a block. And I won't get into the the particulars. It's just that it was it was a really great marketing scam. And he got a lot of people into it. And I can't remember exactly how that thing died, but then it turned over to be Hex. Now, given all that, and you know where Hex is, it's in the toilet. And lots of people have lost their money, as usual, when it comes to doing anything with Richard Hart Wynn. I still go back to the to the uh, same thing uh, the even, you know, back when Richard Hartwin was talking about this in a way that was trying to suck people in. The question becomes, is there a, a way to do double duty with proof of work? And the problem here is that the as far as I can tell, the only way that you will ever get to do double duty is to start is to launch yet another shit coin. I cannot see any particular way that the SHA-256 algorithm would be able or solving that whole thing. I cannot see how the compute power used to be involved in the SHA-256 system would be able to do anything other than solve blocks. However, it would be great if you could. I mean, it really would. It would be great if you could just say, look, I've figured out how to do mining on Bitcoin and not a shitcoin. And at the same time, that uh, some of that is harvested to be able to solve this, you know, these folding, folding at home projects. <clears throat> I, I really think that this is sort of like the nature of the universe. If you're doing one job, the chances that you can do two jobs at the same time when, you're, when your intent is to finish job one, I don't think it's possible. I think from a philosophical standpoint, I don't believe it's possible. That doesn't mean that I don't hope that I'm dead wrong. It just means that I haven't seen it done. And the chances of people getting, you know, succumbing to greed and turning into a shit coiner with this kind of thing is very, very, uh, it's real easy to do. I've seen it happen. Uh, So when people start inevitably coming back and using the COVID-19 situation to talk about their new shitcoin that helps folding at home or has their own algorithm, stay away from it. St- stay as far away from it as possible. Not because I want people to die of COVID, but because 99.99% of the time it's going to be a scam. They're going to steal your money and they're going to do it by leveraging your conscience, conscience as a human being those are the worst kinds of scumbags, so just be aware. Now, getting into a different kind of scumbag entirely, Wells Fargo is at it again. It faces a lawsuit over 401k plan violations. Oh, gee. Anatol Anatovici is writing for Bitcoinist.com sometime today. U.S. Bank Wells Fargo, which previously banned its clients from buying Bitcoin and other digital currencies due to high volatility and risks is being sued by a former employee who charges it with mismanaging its 401k plan. Participants of a retirement savings plan offered by Wells Fargo sued the banking giant and fiduciaries claiming that the executives violated the employee 
Retirement Income Security Act of 1974 by using some of its own investments while ignoring cheaper and potentially better performing options. Jesus. The plaintiff, who seeks a class action suit, filed a complaint on March the 13th in a U.S. District Court in San Francisco, California. According to the file, defendants picked investments that benefited Wells Fargo and Company and its subsidiaries and executives. And quote, Yvonne Baker, a former Wells Fargo employee, says that the bank filled its 401k plan with expensive, underperforming investment instruments that ultimately paid fees to itself. <laughs> she filed the suit against Wells Fargo, its board of directors, two committees, and fiduciaries, including Gilliard. Capital management, quote, defendants selected and retained Wells Fargo products over materially identical yet cheaper non-proprietary alternatives. Uh, they selected Wells Fargo products that had no performance history that could form the basis of a fiduciary's objective decision-making process. The plaintiffs concluded, good God, despite sustained underperformance, the defendants failed to remove proprietary funds. Becker was one of more than 344,000 participants in Wells Fargo's $40 billion plan. One of the products denounced by the plaintiffs was a target date series that used a collective investment trust that was added to the plan four years ago. The series had no prior performance history or track record, which could demonstrate that they were appropriate funds for the plans, according to the lawsuit. It's not the first time that the United States banking giant mistreats or disregards its clients or even its own employees. Last month, the bank agreed to pay $3 billion to settle criminal charges related to the fake account scandal. For more than 14 years, the bank opened accounts on behalf of clients without their consent and knowledge, forged signatures, sounds like Craig Wright, set up fake personal IDs, sounds like Craig Wright, and even transferred customer funds without their permission. Two CEOs stepped down as the scandal went on. This mess is gradually, has been gradually created by Wells Fargo's employees who were required to reach sales targets that went higher every year. Sounds like CDOs and whatnot. Uh, and and uh, the home loan thing. I, I'm sorry, I've been watching a lot of financial disaster movies lately, and they're fascinating, man. Senior executives didn't care if the goals were exaggerated. Major banks have already lost their credibility after the 2008 crisis, but many of them have never ceased to impress us with their wrongdoings until this day. And I, I, I doubt that this is going to be the end of it. So Wells Fargo is at it again. And I mean, I mean this is just, if, there, if this is true, <coughs> <clears throat> that they were putting their own instruments that had zero, you know, had zero need of being there and paying fees to themselves. I mean, at what point do people actually go to jail? Now, look, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the biggest statist in the world, but Jesus, you know, I, I guarantee you, even in the most libertarian colony on the face of the planet, like, let's say there's a, like, 200,000 died in the wool libertarians living on a fucking island somewhere and somebody does this kind of shit. If you don't think that that crowd of 200,000 people will either throw them in a, you know, pine, I don't know, like a bamboo jail or worse, probably dismember the son of a bitch and roast it over a fire and feed the roasted bits to fishies out in the sea, you'd be wrong. I'm sorry. You'd, you'd be wrong. I, I, you know, you, you don't get to defraud that many people without facing some sort of retribution, you know, whether it's jail or being lynched. I, I don't know what else, how else to say it, but I, you, you, 
if you rip your neighbor off and they catch you red-handed, you're probably going to get your ass beat. Does that make the neighbor a statist? No. No, it doesn't. It makes that motherfucker somebody you don't want to be jacking around with. That's what that makes that. And that's going to do it for the morning roundup. Daily Train Wrecked brought to you by at Gino Liod, G-I-N-O-L-E-O-D. And he's probably... Hopefully he's probably just kidding. I, I don't know, but he's, uh, he's replying to a gentleman by the name of Scott Melker. And you've probably seen him in your Twitter feeds. If you have been in, in crypto for a while, Scott Melker 15 hours ago says, I think Bitcoin is going to go up to be honest. Well, Gino, uh, writes back and says, no man, huge bear flag forming. Honestly, honestly, I don't know how I could have done another train wreck. I mean, it's not all that train wrecky, but yeah, considering that uh, Bitcoin like shot up today while everything else was freaking flat. um, Yeah, that that was going to have to be the (laughs) terrible joke corner or uh, the uh, train wreck. And while we're at it, let's get right on into the terrible joke corner. Dad says jokes tells me that. If I had a penny for everyone who asked me to look after their dogs, I'd have a pound. Mm, That's a nice dad joke right there. All right, this is going to be one of the very first ones that I've done in a long time that ends before it's an hour long. I can't believe I was able to do it finally. I mean, after a couple... I saw one that was a hunt like an hour and 45 minutes. Dude, that's unacceptable. That's I'm trying to respect your time. And everybody's got shit to do. So I'm just going to go ahead and leave it here. I'll see you on the other side of COVID-19. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.